Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 131. Hail, hail, corporate rock and roll. Carry on, my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, being that I did some origin story a couple of episodes ago with comic books and that I did some music-related film stuff last episode, I thought it would be a good idea to go back into my personal history with music again. I've had quite a bit of fun with this. I've talked about the 90s with Amanda, uh, brought you songs I taped off the radio, I looked at cherished B-sides, I took us on a softacular journey. In fact, it's that episode, the softacular, that kind of served as an inspiration for this one. I've mentioned more than a few times that even though I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I was exposed to quite a bit of music from the prior decades, especially the 1970s. 106.7 Light FM was the vehicle for that, as I often heard 1970s soft rock and yacht rock staples in, well, a moving vehicle, but my upbringing wasn't always Light FM classics. Sometimes I heard my share of rock music. In the case of parent-friendly radio stations that were on in the car in the kitchen radio, such as WBLI and WALK, I was pretty up-to-date on the latest mainstream pop rock of the 80s, which is why I'm very familiar with the works of Eddie Money. And really, I probably have more of a childhood connection to Take Me Home Tonight than, say, songs by... Quiet Riot or Twisted Sister, even Van Halen, to be honest with you. Oh, sure, I probably knew who those bands were back then, but it wasn't the type of music my parents allowed in the house when I was nine or ten. Although, is we're not going to take it that damaging to a ten-year-old? It would take me a while to really figure out the genre of music I thought spoke to me the most. And even when I found something that I could call, quote, my own in a manner of speaking, I never really stayed in one place. My music collection is eclectic, especially when it comes to rock and pop. I've got ABBA next to ACDC, Simon and Garfunkel next to the Sex Pistols, Al Green next to the Go-Go's. It's the result of having a few outside influences cousins, friends, college roommates, even my parents, but also having a curiosity for anything and everything. Okay, well, everything for that shitty pop country, I, I mean, I do have my limits. Anyway, back when I was 10, really had only those few stations to listen to, and maybe Z100 or 95.5 PLJ, that is if I could get them to come into my radio. I wound up grooving to a selection of tracks that were decidedly mainstream. And even when I started listening to my own station, WBAB, Long Island's home for rock and roll, I still heard as much of the mainstream classic rock as I did the current alternative grunge rock that I was buying on CDs. So in a way, I was raised on corporate rock. And that's what this episode is about. Now, what is corporate rock? 
Well, it's a derogatory term for a particular type of middling mainstream rock and roll that had its heyday in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I first heard the term in the late 90s on a big 80s-themed episode of VH1's pop-up video in reference to one of the songs that I'll be taking a look at later in this episode. Urban Dictionary has a couple of definitions for it, but the best one, or at least the one that suits this episode, is music that fails critically but succeeds commercially. Corporate rock is typically appropriate for all listeners, lacks creativity or invention, and establishes broad appeal as a result of heavy marketing or saturation. Now, that's a little harsh, especially considering some of the songs on the list I'll be presenting to you did get positive critical reviews. But the idea that it had a mass appeal, that's really accurate. Because this type of music is exactly that middle-of-the-road arena rock that you could blare from the stereo of your blue 76 Camaro while you and your friends share a six-pack in a parking lot. It also encapsulates the the mainstream rock sound of the late 70s and early to mid-1980s, a time when rock was kind of trying to find its way, or at least was in a transitional period, which does happen every decade or so. After all, Those of you who were early 90s teens know that while this was a number six hit in 1992, this song made it all the way to number one. Now, I'm not here to rag on Mr. Big. To Be With You is an all-time great song, but it fits more in line with what was mainstream and not alternative during the dawn of the 90s. Songs like Extremes More Than Words as opposed to Nirvana's follow-up to Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are. And that's nothing compared to the very early 2000s, which had the congealed sound of acts like Creed, Stained, Three Doors Down, Lifehouse, and... Nickelback. Plus, the charts of both the beginning of the 90s and the aughts were way more diverse than just rock, and it seemed like the genre had its own growing pains at one time or another. These things happen. The charts for the early 1980s, therefore, aren't much different. Right around the time this episode is going to come out, this was the number two song of the country back in 1982. And along with it were a few other 80s classics, such as Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, The Cars Shake It Up, and Tommy Two-Tone telling us the most important phone number of the decade. And while the Billboard chart still has some rock, new wave, and R&B from around this time in 1982, there really isn't a lot of variety as to who was on the charts. Looking back, this is around the, the middle of March of 82, since I'm recording this episode a little later than intended. If I look at the top 40, 25 of those 40 hits were by white male bands or solo acts. While the Jay Giles band song is a staple of 80s compilation albums, the song that kept it out of the top top spot on the Hot 100 was this. I'll get to Journey. 
and specifically Open Arms later in this episode, because they certainly deserve to be on this list as one of those generic bands that cluttered the airwaves in the late 70s and early 80s, especially rock radio. And I'm sure that we know a number of these bands or these tunes, even if everyone listening didn't care about the bands or the songs or even like them. That's how ingrained some of them are. So I put together a list of songs that are great samples of corporate rock. Before I start, though, I should say that all of this is my opinion, it's conjecture, and while I did some research for this, I'm not a professional. I know, this isn't a podcast about Star Wars or Batman, but I'm just going to say that anyway, just so that you don't jump all over me for making a mistake or something. But anyway, I'm going to start with the song that led this episode off, and that's Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas, a song that was released in November of 1976 and peaked at number 11 on the Hot 100 on April 2nd, 1977. Out of most of the songs on this list, it's actually probably the least generic because of its six-minute runtime, although it was cut to three and a half minutes for the radio, and because there are a number of shifts and changes throughout which give it a little more of an edge than, say, other generic arena rock anthems of the era. And much like a number of the songs on this list, I heard it a bunch of times on classic rock radio, and even though there are things that set it apart, it's still got enough of a hook to make it memorable, and it's generic enough to ignore. Much like the next song. I think this is the oldest song on the list or one of the oldest songs on the list. It was released two months before Kansas's song and it peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100. Boston would have a number one hit in 1986 with Amanda, but that song is way too cheesy even for me. But more than a feeling, it's not terrible. It does suffer from the same problem that Carry On My Wayward Son and the next two songs on this list suffer from is that at one point or another, it sounds like so many other of these songs. Like, take a listen. Yourself, 
And let's listen to it with the next song attached. Yeah, it's not a 100% match, but when you listen to them and add the fourth song on the list... Well, the mixtape makes itself, guys. Now, back to 38 Special, whose 1981 top 40 hit, Hold On Loosely, reached number three on the rock charts and number 27 on the Hot 100. It also had the distinction of being the 13th video ever played on MTV. They were not a one-hit wonder. In fact, with the exception of the next band, every single one of these bands had a solid run throughout their careers. Caught Up in You was a number 10 hit in 82, and honestly, it sounds a lot like Hold On Loosely. And it makes this first group of four songs because of its genericness. In fact, it even apes the cars to produce a catchy middle-of-the-road tune. Although props to them, I guess, for not having a geographic band name, like Boston was a city, Kansas a state, and... Asia, which I'll get to next, was an entire continent. But then again, they were a supergroup, and a supergroup has to have a huge name. Asia? You framed an Asia poster? How hard did the people at the frame store laugh when you brought this in? They did not. And now you find yourself in 82. The disco hotbox home, the charm for you. You can't concern yourself with me. Heat of the Moment was recorded by this conglomerate of members of Yes, King Crimson, and ELP, and was a mainstream rock number one, as well as a number four hit on the Hot 100 in 1982. Now, Wikipedia mentions that Asia is a progressive rock supergroup and they weren't American. But while the 1970s saw some progressive rock groups do some trippy experimental stuff, much of which was long-winded and pretentious, by the way, the 1980s saw them dip into the corporate rock pool. Well, at least you can say that about Yes, whose only owner of a lonely heart was as mainstream as just about everything Genesis put out in the Phil Collins era. Genesis? Yes, Genesis. I'm going to keep Genesis off this list, except to say that they are a great segue into the next two songs, which fit the category of songs by bands who either had a harder rep and went softer, selling their souls to corporate rock and roll or recorded songs specifically to please a record company's wishes that they release something commercial. Up First is a band whose image in the 80s differed significantly from that of the 70s. It's the only female-fronted band on this list. Heart. What about you? Don't you want someone to care about you? Oh, 
I'm going to preface my thoughts on heart in the 1980s by saying how much I love 1980s heart alone from 1987's bad animals was my first exposure to the band. Although it is possible. I heard these dreams on the radio before that, but I didn't know the name of the band at that point. The Wilson sisters had fronted one of the better 1970s rock bands and they produced songs like magic man crazy on you and Barracuda. So, how did we get from that sort of edgy raw rock to synth forward ballads and mid tempo rockers? Well, something called the record industry happened. As the 80s got underway, Hart was on the decline commercially. They were in a bit of turmoil as far as personnel and relationships within the band. And that, along with poor album sales, led to them being dropped by their label. They would eventually sign with another label, Capitol Records and they recorded a self-titled album that would generate a number of top 40 hits and even top 10 hits in 1985. That album went quadruple platinum and was their most successful one to date. Most importantly though, the band changed its image from being a female-fronted hard rock band to being glammed up with big hair and lots of cleavage, along with a sound that included more synthesizers and other elements of the mainstream pop of the decade. But... Don't take my word for it. I'll let the 1998 Behind the Music episode tell you about it. Hello, America. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey. Looks good. Good. <laughs> Get it. With success came a new look, thanks to a complete makeover by some of Hollywood's best designers and photographers. It's an incredible illusion. <laughs> What it is. <laughs> the only problem was the new look had little in common with Ann and Nancy. It's about selling sex. A huge emphasis is put on the way uh, a woman looks in the music business. And it, it became uh, probably the most Im important part of selling that band for a certain period of time. A little sprucing job. We've always been sexual beings on stage, but then when it becomes an expectation, then you want to rebel, then you don't want to be a sex symbol, then you don't want to put on the corset, then you don't want to play dress up. But it was too late for Ann and Nancy to rebel. They had lost their souls to corporate rock and roll. So it's all your fault. Yeah. I'm him. Suddenly all of a sudden we looked around ourselves and we were in a lifeboat surrounded by water. Our true artistic whole selves were somewhere on a beach and we were going, hey, see you later. And, um... <laughs> There were so many people involved. Yeah, it was such a big machine. So this is really a case of what we used to refer to as selling out. Maybe we still, I, I don't really hear that. I don't hear that phrase in the, with the youths these days. Do, do the youths still say selling out? Anyway, I can't knock heart too much. I mean, I love that 1980s stuff. So I'm just kind of using the phrase as a matter of fact anyway. But the music industry historically has had its way of taking advantage of people and spitting them out when it is done with them. Considering the Wilson sisters went on to ditch heart to be the love mongers in the 90s, I think that proves it in some way. That group was pop rock, but they did their own thing on their own terms. Um, and I actually would recommend checking out some of the love mongers stuff. It's, it was really, really good. You can stream it in various places. 
Now, Heart did return. Uh, they've made the rounds in the nostalgia circuit over the years. If you want some really good rendition of their 80s stuff, I would recommend the 1995 album, uh, The Road Home. It's a live album that's kind of unplugged. It's not It's not an unplugged album in that unplugged series, but it's it's definitely a stripped down, like more acoustic um, theater, uh, like amphitheater, like small theater uh, concert album. And it's really, really good. But getting back on our corporate rock topic here, it's that word, corporate, that's key. With Heart, it was the way that the record company was able to change them so they could be more profitable. And that also applies to insisting a band put a particular song in an album because it might sell. And such is the case with Cheap Trick. The Flame is a number one 1988 hit for the band who had made a name for themselves in the late 70s and early 1980s with pop rock hits like Surrender, Dream Police, and I Want You to Want Me. I wouldn't throw that stuff in with Boston or Kansas because they were those were tightly written ditties that felt of their time and yet harken back to the more simple days of earlier rock and roll, if that makes sense. The Flame, though, that's like completely different. The band had been a career, at a career low point in 1987, and their record company presented them with two songs for their next album. One was The Flame. The other one was called Look Away. It was written by Diane Warren. Uh, it ultimately became a hit for the post-Peter Cetera Chicago. The Flame was huge, and at various times since it topped the charts, there are stories of one or more of the members of the band hating it and even refusing to play it in concert. It sounds like that's half true, to be honest. It was not a particularly well-liked song among the band members, but I think perhaps the stories of Cheap Trick outright hating it that much, especially since it made them really popular again, might be a little bit urban legendy. The song's a piece of crap, though. Yeah, it's the perfect pop ballad for 1988. It's a syrupy song that employs soaring vocals in the chorus and those light synth notes that seem to permeate so many cheesy pop songs of the late 80s and early 90s. It makes you want to investigate the history of that synth sound. You know, the one, the notes that seem to just lay there in the background, half an octave to an octave higher than everything else. <laughs> Yeah, so like there's a variation of this all over the late 80s, especially in ballads. By the way, that's what's up next. Power ballads. But I'll be lonely without you. And I'll need your love to see me through. 
Along with 1973's Lady and Kiss's 1976 song Beth, Styx's Babe is pretty much the originator of the power ballad, and its success helped establish that formula that so many bands would follow to commercial success in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. Written by lead singer Dennis DeYoung as a birthday present for his wife, Babe was Styx's only number one hit. It topped the Hot 100 in December of 1979. And Styx is really a great example of one of those bands who swam in the same waters as our other bands, although DeYoung was a better singer than most of the other middling singers out there. In fact, he has more in common with Mick Jones or Steve Perry than he does with, well, whoever the hell was the lead singer of 38 Special. Still, as anyone who watched Styx's Behind the Music in episode in 1999 remembers, DeYoung and his bandmates, especially guitarist Tommy Shaw, clashed over the direction of their music. Shaw, who would go on to a solo career as well as be a member of Damn Yankees, was more focused on being in a rock band. DeYoung wanted to do like Andrew Lloyd Webber or something. But Kilroy Was Here would not break them up until 1984. Babe put them into the stratosphere, even though it is a hopelessly cheesy song. And I know that sounds snarky, but that's what it is. It's a cheesy-ass song. Just like Foreigner's 1984, number one, I want to know what love is. has a chorus similar to the stick song sorta except while babe's keyboards feel like rob's request to tina on walk pillow talk foreigner employs a full-blown choir because mick jones wants rob to go full lloyd dobler and tell tina that 
he really wants her to show him what love is. And REO Speedwagon, I just want to keep on loving you. The video for this song, by the way, was the 17th video played on MTV in 1981. It was a number one song on the Hot 100 in March of 81. And along with the other two, it marks a soft turn from a band known for its mainstream rock sound. And let's do that side-by-side -side thing again. Sticks and Speedwagon would have success with other power ballads after these two hits, with the former reuniting in 1991 and producing the top 10 hit Show Me The Way, the latter scoring another number one with Can't Fight This Feeling. Ah, oh, and they are all so sappy. Still, a number of people in my generation will belt the shit out of them whenever they hear them on the radio, and that's the power of the, well, the power ballad. In fact, that power was so potent that hair metal bands would run with it all the way to the bank in the latter part of the 80s and the early part of the 1990s. Now, by and large, they were chasing Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home because that's the platonic ideal of a monster ballad. But if you ask me, as far as power ballads are concerned, there is only one champion. There is one power ballad to rule them all. There is one they are all chasing, even to the point where songs that were written before it were chasing it, even though they didn't know it yet. And that's this. We sail on together, we drifted apart, and here you are by my side. Because when you are talking about power in a power ballad, there is Steve Perry and there's everybody else. While it only reached number two 40 years ago, unable to overtake Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll as well as Jay Giles' Centerfold, Open Arms is one of Journey's signature hits and was a bone of contention for the band. Until then, they were mostly known for their rock songs and early jazz-influenced prog rock. They might have done a few slower pieces, but syrupy ballads 
not their style at all. Keyboardist Jonathan Cain wrote the song's earliest drafts before he joined the band, and he finished it with Steve Perry as the band put together 1981's Escape. This was much to the chagrin of other members, especially Neil Schoen, who didn't like the song and gave Perry a hard time in the studio, but changed his um, tune after seeing the reaction of the audience when they started playing it live. The song is not, by any standards, lyrically complex. It actually starts off in a kind of what-the-hell-is-this way. I mean, that's not a rock band. That's the beginning of a Carpenter's song, right? But then you get this build and holy shit. And really, if Steve Perry isn't singing this, the song doesn't work. If anybody is going to compare to Steve Perry, it's Mariah Carey. And a Mariah Steve debut on this, oh, that would be fucking awesome. Still, her cover doesn't hit it for me the way the original does. Now, the power ballad would outlive this iteration of corporate rock because, as I mentioned, hair metal bands would take it to chart dominance in the later part of the 80s. In fact, I think that the rise of that genre in the mid to late 80s was a contributing factor to the decline of bands like Styx, Journey, Foreigner, Kansas, and REO Speedwagon. And MTV, of course, was another factor. Vince Neil and Brett Michaels were a lot more photogenic than Dennis DeYoung. And yes, a number of these bands actually did break up by 1987, with the exceptions of Heart and Cheap Trick. Hart's 1987 Bad Animals was pretty big, and they had a hit in the early 90s with All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. Sticks would have Show Me the Way, like I mentioned, and Journey's When You Love a Woman would be a top 20 hit in 1996. Both ballads didn't hit the way the bands hoped, though, because the comebacks they had were short-lived. Journey did stick around on Long Island radio playlists, and I knew at least a few girls in high school and college who had their greatest hits tape on City Rotation. So there's something to be said about their status as classics. But really, open arms gave way to home sweet home and the corporate rock sound faded into the background and in some cases morphed into a hybrid of mainstream rock and adult contemporary. Some of these bands got second lives. Like I said, they wind up on the nostalgia circuit, touring around and playing amphitheaters and even have like special cruises like 80s in the sand and things like that. But before all that happened... Before corporate rock gave way to, you know, maybe the adult contempt stuff, the hair metal, and, and a lot of these bands petered out. This weird little subgenre had its greatest hit. It had a song that embodied just about everything it was. It's not a power ballad, but it was a number one song in 1985, and it's about the purity 
of music, while ironically being an overproduced piece of pop rock from a band that really did sell its soul, or at least the last remaining member of its classic incarnation did. It's so known for this that at various points in the 2000s and 2010s, it was voted one of the worst, if not the worst, song of the 80s and of all time. So yeah, this is the ultimate corporate rock song. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. Now, this is not Starship's only hit, and there are other songs that might deserve criticism. But being that Starship was hugely popular and was formed with from what remained of Jefferson Starship, which was the second version of the seminal San Francisco psychedelic rock band Jefferson Airplane, that kind of tracks into the selling out, selling our soul type of thing. This band, Jefferson Airplane, they recorded Somebody to Love, Volunteers, White Rabbit. They were part of the counterculture. But... Just as so much of the 60s sold out in the 80s, so did they. By the time they became Starship in 1985, Grace Slick was the only remaining founding member. And it really is tough to put into words just the sheer inanity of We Built This City, or, or why I'm sure I'm not the only one who will still sing it at the top of his lungs. We built this city, this kick-ass city, what kind of music built this city? In fact, does any lyric in this song actually make sense or matter beyond the chorus? Like I said earlier, the song says it's about the purity of music and railing against the corporatization of rock and roll, which is ironic, don't you think? Because they seem to be complaining about the way that rock's become too polished and Marconi once played the mambo. And it's the Mambo, not the Mamba, by the way. No snakes were involved in the production of We Built This City. And there's something about how they're irresponsible youth because they don't care about corporate name changes or mergers and acquisitions. And they just want to dance here. But there's been stage theft. And Marconi is still playing the Mambo. But then they're on school curricula? And then we get a traffic report? Looking out over that Golden Gate Bridge on another gorgeous sunny Saturday. I'm seeing that bumper to bumper traffic. I have a headache. This is one of the many things that makes We Built This City the epitome of 80s corporate rock banality. What some local radio stations would even do, in fact, is remove the San Francisco-centric traffic report and insert their own drop. And I really don't know what else to say about this song, except for all my Siriki commentary. It's fucking infectious, man. And I'm going to be singing it at some point or another or rocking out to it 
at some point or another, when I hit shuffle on my 80s playlist and it comes up on my iPod, God help us all. And that'll do it. (laughs) I don't have any feedback right now, but uh, feel free to send it my way. I'll be back in a month with another episode. I've got a summer miniseries planned. Um, I still have an idea in the works here, so I'm not going to reveal too much about it, but hopefully I can get that up in like maybe July or August. So until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.